This is Building Optimal, a podcast to help builders and remodelers take your construction business to the next level. If the name Bob Claricio sounds familiar, well, it's because we actually had him on the podcast already a few episodes ago. But I wanted to have Bob back because he's this interesting guy and just this open book of sorts who's very authentic about his journey in a little bit of a different part of the industry from a lot of us. He builds tiny homes, but uh, it's a fascinating journey that he's had and he's had a lot of success building his company over the last few years, kind of a rocket ship of growth that they have experienced. So I wanted to have Bob back on just to talk to him a little bit more and hear some more about what he does and what inspires him and how his growth in the industry has progressed. So that's the episode today. I realize it's not entirely educationally based like a lot of our content is, but uh, I think that sometimes stepping back and taking a little different angle, a little approach can also be just as beneficial. So I enjoyed the conversation with Bob. I hope you guys do as well. So how exactly did you get into building tiny homes in the first place? You know, it's a really funny story or not, but uh, basically what happened is uh, at the time I was a fix and flipper. So the day that I got the phone call that kind of got me involved in doing tiny houses was I was walking out of a house that I was touring. I was looking to buy another property that we were going to renovate and flip. And my office manager called me and says, you know, I don't know if this is a prank call or if it's for real, but a TV show just called The Office and wants you to build a tiny house for them. Now, the funny thing about it is I knew what they were because there was this goofy show on FYI called Married at First Sight. And uh, me and my wife used to watch this show. It was like, and Tiny House Nation uh, came on right after that show. So I had seen the, the Tiny House show, you know, a, a couple of times. I was exposed to the concept, basically. So I was kind of intrigued. But to be honest with you, I, I was more intrigued about being on TV. I mean, for a contractor, it's kind of like going to the Super Bowl, you know, to be able to go on TV. And so that was exciting. And so I took the phone call. We agreed to do the episode. And... About two weeks later, the entire film crew and everybody came into town. But after reviewing the plans, we realized that this thing, this tiny house on wheels was not going to fit inside of our shop. So we ended up building it in the back alley. And uh, I got a real kick out of the attention that it brought. Um, People would see it in the back alley of the shop and they'd stop and they'd ask to see it and then the whole film crew rolled into town and there's an additional 20 people running around, uh, producer assistants and audio, uh, cameramen, the actual hosts of the show. It was, it was quite the experience. And, uh, so we built the first house and our Facebook page went from like 800 people to 1600 over the course of that week, as we posted pictures of what we were doing and things of that nature. 
and for whatever reason, I couldn't let that attention uh, go. The idea that this this product or this craze created that kind of attention um, fascinated me. Um, but the real decision to you know go forward in the tiny house world was we had a small open house, and I mean, I put up a Facebook event page, basically just so my relatives that had never been to my shop just knew where to go. And I don't know, I might have put it up like a month before the open house. And all of a sudden, it started to get shared and spread around Facebook. And Facebook was really the major platform that we were uh, marketing on and really was totally different platform than it is today. But at that time, Facebook events and things like that were starting to really kick off. And, and so people were sharing this all over. And all of a sudden, 150 people showed up to my shop on a Saturday. It was only a thousand square feet. It was, it was crazy. I mean, we were, we had some coffee and some donuts and things. And you would have thought that a pack of wolves came through there because everything was gone uh, within a matter of minutes. And I had never, um, I think one of the challenges as a contractor, I think a lot of people can relate to is we do such great work, but we're never able to like drag it around and show anybody. And we're certainly not able to have these open houses where we get to parade around our, our craftsmanship and all these people get to tour through somebody's kitchen that we just finished. So it was a totally different experience for me to be able to show people the work that we do and how we do it and so forth. I fast forward and I made a decision by the end of September. So we built the first house for the TV show, Tiny House Nation. Did it get aired? Yeah, it aired. And uh, it didn't air when I wanted it to, but it aired eventually. And uh, I learned a lot about that too, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, we shot that first episode and we built that first house in the first couple of weeks of August. By the end of September of 2015, I pretty much made up my mind that I was going to close all business and go all in on tiny houses. And it was based on a couple of different market indicators. As far as I was concerned, you know, I was kind of burnt out from fixing, flipping and uh, remodeling and uh, just was looking for a new different opportunity or a new spin on the same old thing that I've been doing. And this just kind of fit well for me. I had no idea what I was really getting myself into, to be honest. And, um, you know, there were some definite near-death experiences that came about in those first couple of months of launching a brand. You know, you talk, you asked about the, when did the show air? A lot of my decision to go all in on the tiny house thing was riding on the premiere of that episode. And I thought that you know, when that, I wanted to time it so that when that episode aired, we'd be ready to build something. And, uh, well, the episode was supposed to air in October and it didn't, it got pushed back two months. And so we really didn't have a whole lot of marketing budget at the time. So it got scary quick because now we were, we went from a thousand square foot shop to, um, 11,000, which where we still operate today. So um, you, you had a thousand square foot shop while you were fixing and flipping. Yeah. Okay. And, and you expanded in anticipation of your growth whenever you made the transition to tiny homes. Yeah. So I, I leased the, it was a crazy October. 
<laughs> I leased a building that was 10 times the size of where I was used to operating out of. And uh, why, why did you do that? Were you just estimating what you're going to need? So here's why I did that. Um, one, building in an alley was not going to be sustainable. And two, uh, winter was coming. And it's Chicago, so it gets you know negative temperatures and a ton of snow. And I really thought that that episode was going to air in in uh, October, and that you know the phones were going to ring and we're going to have all this business and we better we better do something with this. And so I basically we needed so much room for material, and then we needed enough room to build a couple of different houses at the same time to really make the thing worthwhile. So. Going from 8,000 square feet to 10,000 square feet, there really wasn't anything anyways. So it just was what was available. And uh, But what happened next was just terrifying. So the episode didn't air. One by one, my employees left because they thought I had lost my absolute mind. Were, were these employees that you carried over from the fix and flip? Yeah, so these employees. And, and these were actually employees on payroll. Yeah, my fix and flip business and kitchen remodeling, property management, I had a whole gambit of, I had a very diversified revenue stream, which I recommend anybody in contracting to diversify that revenue stream as much as possible, whether it's having property management, work order type revenue, remodeling type revenue, fix and flip, rental revenue. That's one thing that I was really good at when I was general contractor was, uh, you know, that whole, the whole idea of you know, having multiple streams of revenue that kind of all fell under one umbrella. So yeah, I had full-time employees because the punch list orders and everything else, it just made a lot of sense. So they were all really talented guys and, um, they came back around. None of them worked for me, but, (laughs) um, you know, they, they pop in from time to time and a couple of people really came back and really reconciled and they really thought I was nuts and, and I don't blame them. And the next three months were really, really tough. And I was, so now here I was, no employees. And now I'm in 11,000 square feet in the middle of winter. And I still haven't sold another tiny house. And now they tell me that the episode is not going to air until maybe February, possibly April. And I have very little money left now because it burned through a lot of rent money. And, uh, you know, just, just trying to keep, keep it afloat enough to catch this wave. And, uh, but I realized that it was not sustainable and I needed to figure out another way to, to drive attention and really start to get some, some business with this tiny house thing. And it's the middle of the fourth quarter and I didn't have any money. So, but Facebook was free and we were starting to really get a following and we were starting to, you know, I was constantly like repurposing and posting pictures of that one week in, in August and really just started to, you know, put some campaign together it was starting to get more attention and more attention, more attention. And Facebook live wasn't a thing yet, but man, could you do a video and post it and it would get real attention. Nobody at that time, let me, let me go back one step and kind of paint a picture. Nobody was building these little houses within a thousand miles of me in Chicago. The next guy closest was in Chattanooga. And then after that, there was nobody till you got like way into Florida. And in Texas, I think there was one guy like way out in Austin or something 
or San Antonio. I don't know. But either way, this was Wild West territory. And nobody all the way until you got to Colorado and all the way to the Atlantic, there was nobody yet. This was 2015. You know, the, the whole thing was just brand new. And now there's over 65 tiny house companies across the country. So at that time, attention was completely undervalued in our space. And I was able to really drive a lot of attention early and really create, start to create that following. Um, but then I also realized that, you know, I'd get on these blogs and I'd get on Facebook groups and I was just using, utilizing any kind of free platform to just create a voice and start to offer up information and recommendations and things like that. And it really started to work, but it wasn't, nothing was converting. And I really did, I did set a deadline that if nothing came in by January, the end of January, 2016, that I would pack it up. I will have admitted my failure and I will figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to make all these situations that I've now, you know, make them right in a lot of cases of whether it was owing bills or whatever. And, uh, well, just like in contracting, there's seasonality, right? Well, I had no idea what the seasonality was of tiny houses. So here I am in the fourth quarter, just tranching through this. And I mean, like trying to fight like hell and thinking like that, this is how the whole year is going to be. Well, little did I know that the first quarter is the busiest time that we have for tiny houses. Then the second quarter and the third quarter usually kind of come in half of what the first quarter is. And then the fourth quarter is usually half of the third quarter. Why is that? Um, well, so it's something that's really fascinated me. Just to finish my thought right here, three houses came in in January and really started to save save the whole uh, situation. So that's kind of that's the start of what happened in January. To answer your question, I'd, so this is something that's fascinated me. But it also is something that coincides with the automotive industry, the RV industry, pretty much most things that have a VIN number, unless it's something like watercraft. Watercraft always is going to be more popular, uh, like boats, jet skis, stuff like that. That's all going to be more popular in, in May, June. But for our product, it has a lot to do, I think, with tax return influence. So I think um, people's tax returns influence down payments. And also, um, the holidays come, nobody's looking to make those types of purchases. These are my best two guesses. And uh, the other reason I think is people realize that these products take lead time, have lead times, like the tiny house on wheels. So ordering it in January after the holidays and then the kind of the commotion's gone, you know, gets them to April or May, you know, as far as the understanding of when they would take delivery. So, I think people really start to jump back on the on the bandwagon come January. And those are my three best assessments. I haven't really, I mean, there's no data out there really explaining it, but that's my best guess is it has a lot to do with tax return uh, motivation. And so that's something I had no idea about. Okay. Yeah. Let's get back to your, um, these three sales, because this is a critical part to your story here. So you get these three sales. Are they all from Facebook? So Facebook didn't really have a good contact form process or, and I really didn't understand the ad structure 
at that time. And I really, quite frankly, didn't have the money for it anyway. So it really didn't matter. Um, so what I was doing is I was always putting our website in comments and things like that. And a lot of the websites, you know, at this time for our industry, for the tiny houses on wheels, a lot of the blogs and listing sites and offer ups and all these different places where you could either sell RV trailers or tiny houses or you know whatever they were all free at that time because people were just trying to get traffic now a lot of people have monetized and those kind of those same avenues we used to use to market have kind of you know really gotten expensive and really don't create the same return as even if we would have paid for them three years ago or four years ago. So anything that came off Facebook would then drive to the website because the analytics, I could track it. And then, and then they come in through a contact form, which in the beginning was like 15. (laughs) I'm laughing myself now. No, first of all, I'll just caveat. Nobody should have a 15 line contact form unless you want like nobody to sign up because nobody's got patience for that shit. But at that time, I had no idea what people wanted, what they didn't. I didn't know anything. So I had this contact form that was like 15 different drop downs and you picked everything. Well, what ended up happening is, is that I kept it for a while and then kind of curigged down the top four colors. So I actually was able to use this long contact form as kind of a survey. But to speed things up, the first couple of leads came from Facebook and then these other kind of blog platform sites. And at that time I really wasn't tracking. All I was tracking was my bank account and it was going in the wrong direction. So I, uh, I never really stopped and thought where, where they came from. So, so I get these three people, three different sales that come in within a matter of a a week and a half of each other. And, uh, they all submit their down payments and February is no different. We got three more March, three more, April three more, because what we realized was we had planted all of these seeds. And when I say we, it really was just me. But for whatever reason, when I think of our brand, when I think of our company and all that kind of stuff, I can't help but say anything but we, but it really was just me at the time. I had planted all these seeds and I had really thought that the market was what the landscape showed me in the fourth quarter of 2015. And man, was I wrong because I created this fire. And I think that, well, two things. One, if I had known the seasonality, obviously I probably would have started at a different time. But I think I would have failed if I would have started at a different time because I really underestimated that momentum push and what it was really going to take. And if I hadn't tranche through that fourth quarter of 2015, I don't think that I would have created enough momentum to really, really launch like we did in 2016. And typically you'll hear me say, you know, when did you start the company? I'd say, well, we built the first one in August of 2015, but we officially launched in January of 2016. And I think the reason I say that is because those four or five months were so painful that a lot of days I just like to forget them. I'm getting goosebumps now, but so here comes April, right? And, uh, we're building tiny houses and it's going good. Uh, we learned a lot. You know, there's this whole idea. We have to ship the thing somewhere. <laughs> and I had no idea about how to ship anything. I mean, 
I didn't use eBay because I didn't really know how to, you know, like I was putting a package together and putting a label on it. It was just like a complicated process for me. And here I am shipping, you know, a 15,000 pound battleship pulled by a truck, like all the way to Fresno, California. So we had Outer Banks of North Carolina was unit number one that come out 2016. Galloway, New Jersey was unit number two. Fresno, California was unit number three. Long Grove, Illinois was unit number four. Unit number five went to South Texas. Unit number six went uh, to Worcester, Massachusetts. So you're then, having to, it's like a, a little bit of an afterthought, right? That's the entrepreneur's mindset. <laughs> right, exactly. And here's the other thing too. So why do I remember those six or seven right off the top of my head? Here's why. Because we were confident, you know, by this time I got a staff and, you know, people are thinking, you know, well, he must be worth something. I better go work for him. So I had a staff again and, uh, but we were concerned, you know, so I was selling during the day and, you know, whenever I could, mostly at night because people get off work. And so I'm selling units and then I'm ordering material, you know, sometimes laying in my bed off Amazon sometimes, you know, it's just this crazy time. And then I'm physically building the units during the day, the managing of shop superintendent in the back. And so there was this trail of sawdust that just went from the shop to my office back and forth. And I remember I had on my wall in my office, I had this 15 foot wide by, you know, floor to ceiling wall that I painted with uh, porcelain or whiteboard paint. And I had all the orders written in dry erase marker across that whole wall so that at any time, if anybody called, I could reference whether it was a supplier or whoever. And I had all the details of those houses and everything on the wall. And the reason I bring that up is sometimes people really overcomplicate, you know, and, and have these like complex software systems to run their business when notepads, whiteboards, shit like that works so much more efficiently to where, um, I still print off emails like I used to day one. When somebody brings a, you know, like I receive a lead, I print off the email and I just write on there and then I'll start stapling stuff together. And before you know it, like the build packet will be this archive of like 25 stapled pieces of paper that go into the vanilla folder where it gets a lot more professional. But sometimes staying basic really, really helps a lot. So here's the six houses that we remember. So me and my staff were like, okay, well, how do we, you know, how do we know it's going to stay together? Because <laughs> really, I mean, trim, stuff like that. Uh, we eventually used Miramastic and to glue the trim on. Like, so we would, instead of using like a caulk backer or something like that, we were backing it with hardcore Miramastic that you'd put a mirror up on the wall with. Uh -huh. Guaranteed, like, this shit's not falling off the wall ever. And uh, because we were so scared, like we're sending this thing all the way to Massachusetts or all the way to South Texas or all the way to Southern California or Northern California, wherever they were going. So those first six, I made a decision. I'm going to the location. <laughs> so the first unit that we shipped to New Jersey and there's a shipping story that I remember, but this one is absolutely insane. So we didn't realize that you had to give a lead time to these bumper pullers. We thought a couple of days was sufficient. We didn't realize it'd take a two-week lead time typically to do this. So then 
we're like, well, what do we do? I'm like, well, there's a shipper in Ohio, so let's rent a truck. Because I didn't even have the right pickup truck at this time. I now do, but at that time, we didn't even have a pickup truck to pull these houses. So we go to Enterprise Truck Rental. We rent a truck. We think that like we could drag this house, drop it off at an Enterprise, and <laughs> catch a plane back. And Enterprise is telling us like that truck is very valuable to our specific location. So we don't allow them to be dropped off because we don't know the next time we'll get one back. So they're important that they come back to the location that they were rented at. Like, shit, now what do we do? So I had a plane ticket already because I booked that like a month and a half in advance because I knew about plane tickets at least. And I was flying out there to meet the customer and all that fancy jazz. So I already had a plane ticket. But now we had this truck. We got this house. We're trekking across uh, Indiana into Ohio. We drive about what should have taken four and a half hours took seven and a half because we got the biggest truck that they had, but it just wasn't for the house that we were dragging. It just, it was gas. It needed to be a diesel truck. There's a lot of details there, but basically it took us twice as long to get there because the next part of the story, you'll know why we remembered how long, because so we trade off with the shipper. Now the shipper's got the house, the actual professional guy, and he's okay. I'm going to New Jersey. I'm like, I'll see you there tomorrow. He's like, what? I'm like, I'll see you there tomorrow. He's like, okay. So we turn around. I didn't even go back to my shop. I had my backpack with me. Uh, my salesman who I had hired, who had just started working like a month earlier, he had his clothes with him. We thought we were, if we had to, we'd take the house with the truck all the way to New Jersey and then just drive back. Well, now I have my backpack. I said, just drop me off at O'Hare. So we turn around out of Columbus, Ohio, and we get back into town and we didn't even go back to the shop. He just dropped me off at O'Hare Airport. I got the plane right like three hours later and was in New Jersey. So then I get to New Jersey, right? And the only reason I'm telling you this is this is like classic entrepreneur fun stuff where you just like whatever's going to happen, go wrong, is going to go wrong. So I had just turned, it was April 2016. I had just turned 30 years old. So I had my driver's license, right? Well, what happens when you're 30? Make you get a fucking new one. So now I'm trying to rent a car and it's a week after my 30th birthday. They won't give me the car. Uh So now I'm in New Jersey. It's the first big client we're going to deliver this house to. And I don't have a car now. And I'm like, what if something's wrong? Like, how am I going to, you know, Uber wasn't really a popular thing then as much as it is now. So I get some taxi cab guy. I'm like, just drive me wherever you, where I need to go all weekend. So I get to the hotel where I'm staying which was in Atlantic City, which I had never been to, which I never want to go back, really, to be honest. And this is not a, this isn't the bash Atlantic City. But anyways, the bellhop goes, that cab company's not allowed to pick up from this hotel. I said, okay, what do you recommend? He goes, well, I got this guy, a friend of mine, he just started working with the Uber app. Uh, maybe I, he needs some business. So he'll drive you around all weekend. And he's probably cheaper. So he was cheaper, but he pulls up. And an SLS 500 or whatever the hell, Mercedes, Maybach, big luxury, <laughs> blacked out, brand new Mercedes. And I'm like, okay, this is a little over the top for a first impression of a customer that I just <laughs> sold a house to. And uh, so, yeah, this guy picks me up and he's driving me to a campground that's got dirt roads and muddy potholes and comes this blacked out car through here. And I pull up. 
And uh, it was just so funny because I made sure I got there like a half an hour early so that the customer didn't see what I rolled up in. <laughs> and then I told them about what time to pick me back up. About three hours later, it'd be fine. And all of a sudden, here comes this murder wagon coming through the, <laughs> through the campground. And people are like, who's that guy? And I had to like, I turned like flush red. I'm like, yeah, that's my ride. And they just all started laughing. And I had to tell the whole story. But I mean, it's just like, the only reason I bring that stuff up is because I can laugh about it now. But I can tell you, like, I was so embarrassed and so frustrated. And I just was so hard on myself and so just meticulously critical of everything. And, and I look back and I'm like, why? You know, like, why were you so hard on yourself, Bob? Like, it's not that big of a deal. It really wasn't. So those are the early years. I mean, that was kind of, I know I kind of probably went way over and just talked way too much about it, but it was really fun to figure it all out. And, uh, you know, three years later, we've shipped 70 plus homes all over the world. And when I say the world, it's because uh, we have one in Switzerland and that was really cool. There was another one of those experiences. Yeah, how'd you do that? Yeah, that was crazy. So it was another one of those experiences, just like the first time the TV show um, wanted us to do the TV show episode. And it was like, is this real? And it just got more and more real. And yeah, they bought one of our models. So it went all the way to Switzerland, which you think is very far, but it's actually closer than Chicago is to Boston from Madrid to Switzerland. So what happened is, is the, the house left here, went to Boston, and then from Boston, and by here I mean Chicago. Uh, so it gets to Boston, it gets on a boat for 30 days and goes all the way to Madrid, Spain, and then from Madrid, it was bumper pulled all the way to Switzerland. And does that not like almost double the cost of the house with all of that transportation? You would think, but it really wasn't that expensive. In relativity i mean i would think it was like 15 grand this was a big house this was oh. so the house cost a hundred thousand dollars it was uh so our, our normal tiny houses are eight and a half feet wide uh they're more on an rv travel trailer platform as far as they don't need wide loads you can hitch them up and take them anywhere anytime any place this house was what they would call more of a park model it was 12 feet wide and it was almost 40 feet long so you got to get uh, you got to get permits for that, correct? You're getting all kind of highway permits. Yeah, and this was last year, and by this time, I mean we just hired the right people to ex. You know, we learned on the shipping that we got hustled a lot in the beginning on the shipping. A lot of people took advantage of us. Shipments that now are consistently twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars. I mean, we were getting ripped off at like sixty five hundred, seven grand. I mean, we just didn't know anything. Yeah. That tends to happen when you're getting up that learning curve. Well, you know what? The ironic thing about it is, is here, you know, all the confidence is like, yeah, it's just a house on wheels. Like I can figure this out. But there were so many other things from the manufacturing side of it and the logistics and all that kind of stuff. That's why I love these types of conversations we're having right now, because it's just a lot of things you forget about and it just becomes second nature. But there's a time when we get to figure it all out and it, it was a lot of fun. So it was just it was just good. So yeah, so we sent the house to Switzerland. Uh, that house got sold off of YouTube specifically. I do know that because that YouTube video is my highest. It's my highest YouTube video at like almost a quarter million views. Yeah. So fast forward, 
we started doing Facebook Live right when it came out, like the day it came out. We started doing like Facebook Live tours, really started to grow that following on Facebook. And I would say that um, just out of necessity and the power of being broke, social media was how we were able to launch a national brand. What looked flawlessly was not very painful, took a lot of effort. But the long play there was that we, we created a real fanfare. And that is something that you can't do with just normal marketing. So now three years later, you know, we, we don't have crazy following numbers, but we have good, solid interaction and engagement. And, uh, you know, we almost have 50,000 on our Facebook page and 15,000 on our Instagram and got 9,000 followers on my personal YouTube channel. And you said you guys have done 70 houses already? Something like that. I, I should have wrote all those numbers down, but yes, it's something around there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then how many are you planning to do over the next 12 months, say in 2019? So right now, what we're really focused on, you know, I think in the beginning, you know, year one, year two, it's like growth, 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 growth. We want to like just grow as much as we can, but it's hiring too. So, and right now we really want to focus on just what we've, what we've built and we're going to start to crawl a little bit as much as run. Cause it's just, uh, we're, we're at a good space. We're at a good size company wise. And, um, we do have some larger commercial projects and things that could come to fruition, but they're more long plays and we're happy with where we're at, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of times people think about growth in terms of top line growth and revenue growth and, and obviously that's important, but a lot of times there's the other part of the equation that's just as powerful, if not more so, which is focusing inwardly and hitting your, uh, uh, your operations, improving your efficiencies, and then you're going to see bottom line growth. And ultimately, that's what matters anyway. doesn't matter if you grow a thousand percent a year on your top line growth if you're not making any money. No, you're absolutely so correct. You can still achieve growth mm -hmm. through a number of means, a number of different strategies. Well, um, interesting, I had never considered the financing constraints with tiny homes, but you know, it's a, it's a industry that, I mean, it's, exactly what got you into it so you got called by a television show but I mean, there's so many documentaries and television shows and things like this that are you know tiny it's like our country has tiny home fever what do you think it is about the tiny home that makes the idea of it so appealing to so many people well first of all i think that sort of touch back on the tv really quick the tv episode did end up airing it didn't air until july 2016 we shot numerous episodes of all sorts of different stuff from this uh and been on tv quite a bit and uh, we were just recently on tv in november on a show called tiny house big living but i'll speak to the tv shows are for those that want to live vicariously through the television tiny i mean there's a handful of people that obviously they live tiny and they do a TV show about it, but the people that actually watch the shows uh, for the most part, you know, they're not the ones who are buying the houses, but yes, there is a tiny house craze, uh, in a lot of sense because it's a tough one, but it's like this. I think it really comes down to, we have a real issue with affordable housing in this country. There's an ownership deficit. That's a huge group of people. I uh, have never been able to afford something to call their own 
whether it's always sharing the exterior four walls of wherever it is that they live with a neighbor, it's a real issue. And the tiny house solves a lot of those issues. But one of the issues that's holding back that affordable ability is definitely the financing. And um, there's a huge constraint on the financing uh, for the tiny house growth. A recent company came about and they're still in the process of figuring out what they're going to do and how they're going to be able to do these loans. But they did a test market to kind of just test the market and see how much traction was really out there or hunger for the product. And for about 30 to 45 days, they ran open polling basically where we took applications and they were, they were averaging 50 applicants a day. If you do the math on that, it's like 9,400 a year. Now the approval rate was three out of five applicants. That's, uh, 20, 20, 20, 20, that's 60%, right? Three out of five, that's 60%. So 60% of 9,400 people, you know, that's, a, I don't know, it's somewhere around 5,000 sales that could be happened with a financing option, such as the one that they are, they are proposing and working through right now. If that happens right now, currently the small little tiny house industry probably produces 1,500 homes a year. Uh, if this lending or something similar comes about, you know, obviously it'll more than triple the market. So it'll be an interesting time if that happens. Until that happens, I think the tiny house industry has kind of met its match as far as growth. Because without a financing option, that's really become the constraint. That's kind of depressing. I agree with you that it's depressing, especially when there's a market need that for some sort of friction can't be achieved and in this case financing what about hoas and deed restrictions and subdivisions is that a problem for the industry do people have a hard time finding where to put these tiny homes to live so all of us manufacturers in the industry that are you know we we've been in it for a while and a couple of different things happened we do have financing it's just not that good for the person that wants to live in it full-time but we do have recreational financing and the way we did that is we all, well, myself personally, I'll just speak to myself. Um, I had to figure out a way to create financing and insurability for the products. Since the day I started, have always been an RV travel trailer company. So that allowed me to join an organization called the RVIA, which is Recreational Vehicle Industry Association. That gave me credibility. That gave me the ability to get financing, get insurance right away. It still took nine to 10 months. The first year, all the way up until August of 2016, it was only cash buyers. I mean, if you had cash, you could buy one of our houses or you had to figure out your own personal loan financing. So because we're an RV travel trailer, we're allowed in any state park, RV park, most mobile home communities across the country. So we don't have a lot of limitations, but it's the person that buys, you know, just a run of the mill trailer and then builds their own home. That's the type of situation where it's going to be extremely challenging for you to get insurance and park it somewhere. Now, there's certain places down in Texas and other places that don't really have zoning's a little different. 
But when you get into the major cities, I don't care where you are in the country, um, it's going to be very, very challenging. Now, out west, L.A. County in California has just released a pretty much a tiny house zoning free-for-all. The expectation is that by 2020, the entire state of California will be tiny house on wheels zone friendly. Uh, most of the center of the state is already, as of the first of this year, completely legal. So we see a lot of attention out in California, mostly because the zoning just changed. And states and communities are changing that process as we go. Big picture, long term, I really think that the tiny house community and the tiny house movement is really just a brand shift to the mobile home industry. And I say that because, you know, you say the words mobile home and everyone's got their own opinion about it. So I feel like you're going to always have mobile home parks and now we're going to have tiny house communities. It's a real bold thing to say, but it's a, it's an obvious observation that, um, that was an affordable housing solution that started many years ago and, got neglected in certain ways as far as management and this, that, and the other, as far as the mobile home industry is concerned. And it's come back, but it's needed a rebranding. And the tiny house communities give it a rebranding. And it gives it a fresh new start to an affordable housing idea that's been around for decades. But people are starting to look at it a little differently. And jobs and everything else have changed. You know, people are not staying in the same location for years upon years. And with the current downturn of the last decade, as far as real estate's concerned, everybody has a very confident feel on that they're going to make equity back on their house, you know, without staying there for 20, 30 years. So people find the tiny house both advantageous for being massively mobile and also just from an affordable housing standpoint, I think is really where we'll see and hospitality too. There's a handful of companies that are starting to use these for hospitality and rentals and stuff like that. There's a company in Indianapolis called Try a Tiny that they rent them out for major sporting events, uh, the Indy 500, things of that nature, where you can stay in a tiny house. And you're so experience type hospitality businesses are really picking up on the tiny house world as well. So they just how does that company work? They've got a portfolio of tiny homes and they move them around the country based on where the sporting events are? Yeah, and they have relationships with the Big Ten sporting events and mostly IndyCar because they're out of Indianapolis. So the Indy 500 and all the different Indy circuit races. But they put them in the infield and people rent them and they get to be on the infield. They get the whole experience. They get a really nice place to stay, taking glamping to a whole new level. That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Hey, back to the financing constraint for a second. I mean... A company like yours that has a track record and a solid operation, I, I just wonder if there aren't institutional investors out there. So think, you know, hedge funds, private equity funds, insurance companies that wouldn't be interested in helping solve that that need by providing a uh, kind of in-house owner financing option to a company like yours, to an operating company like yours to allow you to make sales through owner financing, obviously at rates higher than Fannie and Freddie, because they're not they're not federally backed loans. Yeah, but, no, no, no. And and I'm always reluctant to bring up the financing because it gets to a real deep conversation. But to keep it light, 
um, there's buyers out there for the credit. As far as the paper is concerned, we can underwrite it. We can get it seasoned by, you know, however many months worth of payments that the institution that end up buying the bundle would take. There's some regulations that we're working through right now that have a lot more to do with dot Frank than they do finding the money. The money's there. It's the regulations around how we exactly structure the notes. Yeah. So the notes are the issue. So with our RV financing, that's an auto loan, a simple interest, 15 year term, pretty easy, pretty straightforward too. You apply for it and you're qualified the same way you would apply and qualify for getting a car or any other VIND product, VIN number type product. When it comes to a full-time living situation in a tiny house, the reason that so many people end up getting approved is the fact that they do not include their current rent or mortgage and living expenses in the application to getting approved for the tiny house loan because they're going to be living in that full-time. So they won't have both sets of expenses. And since the average loan at 25 years for a tiny house through the structure that we're working towards, the average payment's 450, you know, they might be renting somewhere for a thousand. So they're actually saving $600 a month. So there's no question that they can afford it. The challenge is, is now that they've just become a full-time living situation, which kind of floats into the mortgage realm of things, which falls into a whole nother gambit of regulations. It's just sorting through that process. So is it a mortgage? Is it an auto loan? Is it a hybrid? If it is a hybrid, do they have laws for that? We have people working on all of that stuff. And uh, it's a lot bigger deal than we really thought. I'm so glad I didn't know any of that information when I started because I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now because it's been a hell of a whirlwind of challenges, but it's been totally worth it because we are really close to getting through that financing hurdle and providing affordable housing for a vast number of people that desperately need it. So it's a cool process.